0: You are. Good on you. Well, good morning, everyone. For those I haven't met, uh, my name's David here. I'm um, uh, married to Julie, my lovely piano-playing wife. Um, and it is a, an honour to, to give Terry, our pastor, a break for the week. We just wrapped up the book of 1 Peter. So um, here I am being a bit of a glue between whatever it is that comes next. Um, Terry, have you thought about what comes next? Is it 2 Peter? it's a process <laughs> okay i've, I've read the things i think in <laughs> either second peter um matthew second Corinthians, proverbs or i'm not sure i'm not reading really Proverbs, but i'm not sure yet. just Six. yeah right i was going to say just the new testament but there's some old in there too so oh, just weird. get your table of contents and <laughs> shut your eyes and point um uh, it is a, a real privilege to be, and I don't say that just to be nice as introductory, you know, break the ice, it's, it's, it's a privilege. It really is. Uh, as many of you know, I'm studying, um, I'm working full time, I work full time as an engineer, um, and that's really fascinating right now. I'm out with the contractor as the military, and everything that's going on in the world, this isn't just rhetoric on Twitter, it's real, uh, it's interesting, it's very interesting what's going on, um, and... The way our world is, it's, it's an exciting time. I think I want to say that, and I don't mean that in a happy way. I mean that in a, in a tense way. It's very interesting. Um, but it's a privilege to come here, because uh, outside of my engineering work, I'm studying, as some of you know, part-time, um, a, a master of philosophy in Christian theology. And what that means is I spend a lot of time reading, a lot of time reading uh, other worldviews other opinions, a lot of philosophies of men, and it's hard work, it's really hard work. And so when Terry says, hey, come and share a word, um, keep it familiar and and just go for it, it was just such a joy to open up the scripture, you know, um, to, it's kind of, well, this is, I've been told that I use a lot of food analogies, maybe you can keep count, but it's kind of like you get this, that roast beef out of the slow cooker after been in there for like four, 14 hours or whatever. You stick your fork in and it just breaks open and that was just like getting into the scripture, it just broke open, it just melted in your mouth. It was just really good, really good. So um, it is truly a privilege to be here. Um, the title of this morning's talk um, is The Pilgrim's Keeper and it's fascinating hearing this about about Dave because uh, I'm now just thinking about Dave as, as I come to this pulpit this morning with what we're looking at which is the 121st Psalm, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 121 uh, this morning, and or swipe depending on your medium of choice uh, in this day, Psalm 121, we're going to look at all eight verses this morning, as you turn in there you'll notice that it has a preface, a song of ascents, it's going to be very interesting what that means as we get into it today. A Song of Ascent, Psalm 121. Let me read these eight verses out for us. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth, both now and forevermore. For many of us, this is a familiar psalm, isn't it? It's a very familiar psalm. We know it. There's a lot of songs that we sing about this psalm. And for good reason. This psalm is all about the goodness and sovereign providence of God over our lives. It is deeply, deeply personal. The pronouns I, you, it's just it's just such a personally crafted psalm. It's deeply personal. If you have uh, heard me speak here before, you know that I'm a sucker for an outline. Um, so any note takers here, I've got you back this morning. But what I want to do is not just give you the outline, I want you to work it out with me. So the first outline on your outline today, the first title line is working out the outline for our outline this morning. Because when we get the structure here of this psalm, and we understand what this psalm is all about, The familiarity that we have, I guarantee you, is just going to come alive in a whole new way. It will take this familiarity that we have and take it to another level. It will just become all the more beautiful. So let's get into it. First of all, where are we? What are we doing? Well, we're in the Bible. We're on the left. We're in the Old Testament. We're in this huge book of things we call the Psalms, which is really just... Um, a word that means a song or a hymn of praise. So we're in the book of Psalms, we're in the 121st Psalm, and this Psalm, Psalm 121, forms a part of a 15 sequential series that began at Psalm 121. So this is like part two of a 15 series. So Psalm 120 all the way through to Psalm 135 is a little set here. And how do we know that? Because all of these Psalms... And you don't find it anywhere else in scripture. Just these 15 psalms are always prefaced by a song of ascents. You don't find that anywhere else. So this is a unique little group of psalms here in Psalm 120 all the way through to 135. We often think that David wrote the psalms and for good reason. He wrote a lot of psalms but he didn't write all of them. And there are some that we just don't know who wrote them, and this is one of those psalms. There's speculations here and there, but we just frankly don't know who wrote this psalm. That doesn't really matter in many ways because what matters here is the content and the substance of these words. Uh, again, these are called a songs, songs of Ascent, and really that is a fitting title when you stop and think about uh, what was going on here because back in the day, you used to make your way up to Jerusalem. You see that all the way over the book of Acts. You know, You read that, and in our Western... Education, we think of up as a bearing north, but back then, up meant topographically, literally up into the sky. Jerusalem was an elevated place back then. Mount Zion, the heart of Jerusalem, stands at about 2,700 feet or 800 meters or something above sea level, right in the middle there of the old town in Jerusalem. Has anyone been to Jerusalem? Yeah. So I haven't. So you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. You can probably smell and taste the heat and feel the heat of we, as we go through this today. It is a hot, high, arid place. And uh, everywhere you go outside of Jerusalem is pretty much downhill. In fact, if you go east past the uh, the Mount of Olives there, it, you're just going downhill for 33 kilometers all the way to one of the lowest points on earth, which is the Dead Sea. That's about minus 430 meters below sea, sea level. So you're Again, 33 metres, do the high school math and you've got 800 metres minus 4. That's like 1.3 k's. Uh, You you, you are carving your, your glutes out on that hike, I guarantee you. It is just, it is steep. It is very steep. A song of ascents. You see where we're going with this? A song of ascents. People are walking up towards Something. So given that these are called Songs of Ascent, and since you always make your way up to Jerusalem, understandably, a lot of scholars, uh, a lot of commentators, understand this, this series of psalms as a group of songs that were traditionally sung as people ascended toward Jerusalem for their annual feasts, which, of which there were three a year. You had the um, Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, or Feast of Pentecost, And you also had the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. You can read about those in um, Exodus and Deuteronomy and things like that. Again, we can't be sure, but this is most likely the historical occasion within which these songs were crafted. Pilgrims on a way to Jerusalem wrote these songs. But let me hasten to add this this morning. I do not believe that the primary divinely intended purpose of this text is an ancient road trip to Jerusalem on a dusty road. I believe that while that may have been the occasion in which these songs were historically sung, I believe that there is a much more profound meaning to this psalm than just the localised protection of some Jewish pilgrims on an ancient Near Eastern road trip three times a year, a couple of thousand years ago. I believe that God in his wisdom has used this author this unknown author to write about a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, a physical, literal pilgrimage that once upon a time took place, and he's now analogically extending that to the Christian life, the pilgrimage of the Christian life, of a pilgrim on a spiritual road ascending as it were to the celestial city, to the new Jerusalem that awaits us all at the end of time. Why do I say that? Because... The old mantra, if the plain meaning of scripture makes sense, seek no other sense, right? So why would you want to read into this? Good question. Verse 8. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. He just projected this a lot further than an ancient Near Eastern road trip. You see, I, I think there's a timelessness to this psalm an eternal perspective, if you will, within which it was born out of in the inspiration of the Lord, as this author wrote. It means the same thing for you and I today as it literally did back then for them on a road, spiritually, us and people to come. So this is it. Psalm 121 is a metaphor of a physical pilgrimage designed to teach you and I spiritual truths about our salvation in Jesus as we walk the road of life and death towards the new Jerusalem. That is what I understand Psalm 121 to be all about. And this is so important as we go through because so often we're drawn to these these kinds of psalms in in the tough times, right? They're so comfortable. In fact, my wife uh, encouraged me to preach this psalm because I said, I'm, I'm tired of speaking on heavy, draining things. Um... And there's so much happiness and joy in the scriptures. And, uh, and she said, Preacher, Psalm 121. So here I am. And so often we're drawn to these texts because they are so beautiful, because they are so encouraging. But if we don't get this right, we're going to rob it of all of its beauty. And in fact, we can make this into a big stumbling block because we read this and we're like, this is not my pilgrimage. Lord, not letting my foot slip. I mean, are you kidding me? Have you seen my week? Psalm 121 is a psalm all about the gospel. It's, it's simple, but it is not simplistic. And that's true of it, not just as as an as the content of what it expresses, but it's also very true as a piece of literature. Uh, the author here uses a poetic technique known as anidiplosis. Don't be impressed. I only learned how to spell that word yesterday. Anediplosis. What is that? Uh, it is a Greek term that means to double back. To double back. And you see it here, if you take a, take a look at this, um, you see it here, for example, in verse 1. Look at the last words. They double back on the first words of verse 2. Where does my help come? Verse 1. My help comes. Verse 2. It echoes. It's like a mirror. It doubles back. Again, verse 3. He who keeps you will not slumber. Verse 4. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber. Verse 5, the Lord is your keeper. And we see this doubling back of this idea of keeping all the way to the end of the chapter. Verse 7, for example, the Lord will keep. Anidiplosis, there is this doubling back. So what do we learn from literary devices like anidiplosis? Well, when you and I in the English-speaking 21st century want to make a point, we get on our word processor, we get out our text in (coughs) Times New Roman size to a font, and we type away, and we bold, underline, and italics to make what we want known stand out. That's what we do here. Back then they used things like anidiplosis. In songs we like to rhyme lyrically to make our ideas come across. They like to rhyme concepts. Not the sound but the concepts. They rhyme the concepts. It's a different way of crafting literature to make a point. So the value of antidiplosis and these kind of literary techniques is that it actually helps us understand what the main point of the text is what the author is really trying to put in your face so what is that great question Uh, as we break down these eight verses what themes really stand out and by the way this is now our outline you note takers firstly what we see is God is our helper verses one and two where does my help come My help comes from the Lord. Point one, God our helper. Secondly, what do we see? We see God our keeper, verses 3 and 4. He who keeps you, he who keeps Israel. Point two, God our keeper. Thirdly, God our shelter. Verses 5 and 6, the Lord is your shade. The Sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. God our shelter. Fourthly and finally, for our outline, God our preserver. Verses seven and eight: "He will keep your life. You're going out and you're coming in, both now and forevermore." So there we have it. Psalm 121, eight verses, four couplets. God our helper, God our keeper, God our shelter, God our preserver. One constant theme. The goodness and sovereign providence of God over your very soul. The goodness and providence of God over your very soul. Not just your life, not just your death, your soul. The Lord is our keeper, the pilgrim's keeper. Let's pray, let's get into it. Father, before us this morning, we have your divinely inspired text that has stood the test of time, transmitted, transferred, translated, preserved here in this building all these years later. And like all the scripture, it is timeless. It speaks to our present uh, circumstances individually, into the details of our lives, which you know better than any of us here. Uh, they're wide and varied from the person sitting next to us. But Father, you speak to those circumstances and more than that, you speak collectively to us as a professing body of believers with you as our head. For each one of us here, Father, in whatever circumstances we presently find ourselves, I just ask that as pilgrims on a narrow way that we would be washed with your word today, refreshed, nourished, encouraged, cleansed, strengthened for this road ahead and it's looking rough life is interesting at the moment Father speak now through your scriptures for they are true and sure and trustable trustworthy so speak Lord for your servants we are listening and we want to know what it is you have to say. Amen. My wife Julie and I uh, recently got back from an incredible um, holiday overseas. We went to Europe. Um, uh, we visited Trin and Stian, some missionaries who left here and went out to the Middle East and um, they've since moved on to Norway. Uh, a lot of people here know them and we had a great time catching up with them. Oski and Seb are getting big. Um, Sebby talks a lot, uh, which is really cool. Um, Actually, Julie and I, um, for those of you who know Seb and Anoski, Julie and I worked out that Julie's very much Oscar and I'm very much Seb. I'm wild and crazy and loud, and Julie's very reflective, I like little Oski. Um, it was so good to catch up with them. After our time down south, we went all the way up north um, to the top of Norway, and then we got on a ferry three hours later up in the Arctic Circle on these islands called the Lofoten Islands. Has anyone been there? Amazing. Um, just forget that you have a bank account and money is important because, my goodness, it is expensive. We got there on the first night, for example, and we, you know, we went to this little um, restaurant and we sat down and we were like, let's get some food. Oh, you just have a, let's just take it easy. You just get, it. Julie got a fish burger and I got some fish and chips and then we got a drink each. And then the, the bill came, 102 Australian dollars. The drink, one carbonated delicious beverage, was $22. Like I said, don't take your your, your financial conscience with you. It was amazing experience, though. It was an incredible experience, an incredible experience. And we're sitting there around this dinner table eating our ridiculously overpriced, average-tasting fish and chips. And we got out this little, um, what do you call it? A little tour guide magazine thing. And we're, we're working out what to do, and um, we're going through all the different options. And we saw all these different hikes. We'd, you know, this was our time to really hike and start sculpting those legs. Uh, after just a, just an eating our way through Denmark and, and Sweden. Um, so here we are looking at what to do. And we thought, you know what, let's take on, um, I hope I pronounce this right, Mount Rainenbriggen, which was rated complex as a mountain climb. Uh, and we thought, let's just do that, first of all. Let's just see what complex is made of. You know, I'm going to start with easy or moderate. Let's go straight to the top, literally. and you get what i'm saying all right so we went out there the next day we got up and we went up mountain rain and bring this complex climb and it was hard it was tough not like you know i've done some tough hikes and it wasn't enduring hard it was just technically it wasn't a hike you're climbing up this thing like it was 620 vertical meters out of the ocean and then you, um, and it was only over a distance of about 900 to 1,000 metres. So it was nearly vertically straight up the whole way. Um, it took us about an hour and 20 to get there, but it was just very tough. And you get up the top, and I hate heights, hate heights. And my wife is running around. I was thinking, I'm, the, I'm a widow. This is it. I'm, I'll be a widower by the end of this. Because you get up the top, and I thought, it should be okay, but it's like sitting on a horse. It's like, except either side is just cliffs. Uh, it was terrifying, and she wanted to get photos with her legs dangling off the end. And- <laughs> it was scary anyway why do I say all that well to use the analogy keep that idea in mind of going up this violently rough road this this hill like a pilgrim on a way it was complex it was steep it was tough the hill was challenging and what do we see here in our first verse God our helper I lift my eyes to the hills from where does my help come you get a real mental image here in this, um, of the dangers that lay before this pilgrim. I did a backflip on my, my normal understanding of this was changed. I used to always think of the hills as a good thing in this. Like, wow, look at the hills and it takes me up. And there are some interpretations that go that way. But I, as I got into this, I was thinking, these hills aren't good. These hills are dangerous things. You had wild beasts in the hills. You had armed and hostile tribes in the hills like the Amalekites, the Philistines who just laid wait in ambush. Not to mention the road itself was just treacherous like Renanbrigan. Has anyone anyone who's been to Israel hiked from like Jericho or something up to Jerusalem or done that road? No? Well, it is steep and, and I was listening to one of my friends talk about it and they had like tour bus nearly went off the edge. It's just crazy as you go around these roads, these windy roads. It is a treacherous road. So we read here, I lift my eyes to the hills from where does my help come? We're not reading a psalm or singing a song about how the hills offer him help, I don't think at least, because the hills are where the dangers lay. The hills symbolise all of the hazards of the pilgrim on a narrow way that he had to traverse before he would arrive safely at his destination. And the hills were not just physically dangerous places. In the ancient Near East, it was the high places that was associated with gross spiritual perversion. For example, Jeremiah 3.6, The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one, Israel, how she went up to every high place and under every green tree and there played the whore? Hosea 4.11-13, For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray and they have left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of mountains and burn offerings on the hills. We could go on and on and on. But the point is the hills were spiritually debased. In fact, we see this today, you do not? Anyone know what happens in the Blue Mountains up at Katoomba once a year? The, win- the witch festival, the annual winter solstice. I don't know what's in the air up there, but the hills are the, the places that this kind of paganism back then and even today manifests. The, spi- the hills were, for whatever reason, spiritually debased. So here we have... This pilgrim on a road, looking up, asking the question, where does my help come from? It's a good question, isn't it? It's a routine question. Where do, where, do I, where do I get help? Where does my help come? Some of you may be asking that question today. I don't pretend to know what's going on in your life. We all need to ask for help. Some of us, more than much more than we care to admit. We all need to ask for help. And let's be honest again, how how often do we go looking for answers in the wrong places? To find help in things that were never created for that kind of help that we really need. We look at the hills in our life and we think, man, you know what, I am going to work this out. I've got my existential bootstraps, I'm going to pull them tight, I'm going to work out how to hike the hills, climb the cliffs, swim the streams, I'm going to make this thing on my own, I'm going to study the map. To get around this, where does my help come from? Thankfully, this is a rhetorical question. We're not not left to wonder because the psalmist knows straight away, verse 2 My help comes from the Lord, not the hills, but the Lord who made heaven and earth. Think about that for a moment. The pilgrim's help, where does it come from? The Lord. Great. Who is the Lord? Tag on the end the one who made heaven and earth what does that include the hills my help comes from the lord who made the heaven and earth even you you big bad hill my help comes from the lord don't just look forward and freak out look up and give thanks jeremiah 3:23 truly the hills are a delusion truly in the lord our god is the salvation of israel Don't look forward. Look up. Because what are these hills? Yes, they're hazardous. Yes, they're tough. Yes, they're rough. But they're a part of creation. Paganism is the very worship of creation at the expense of the creator. Don't look to the hills for the answer. Look to the creator, not creation. Preoccupation with creation paganism. Romans 1.25, they exchanged truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Don't put your trust in creation. Psalm 56.11, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Romans 8.31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Folks, I know this is all easier said than done. Uh, And, you know, you're going through these tough times in life and you're like take it to the Lord, look up, go to the Lord. The point here isn't that it's easy. You're still on a road and you've still got hills to climb, right? But the point is there is a place to go. That means you can weather or endure and have stamina and endurance on that road. Petition him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, Ephesians. 3.20, because there is nothing beyond the scope of the creator. Isaac Watts, before the hills in order stood, or earth received her frame, from everlasting thou art God to endless years the same. When you look forward, look up. And by the way, as a footnote, this is one of the great problems with politics today. We talk about left and right, we talk about forwards and backwards, and we've forgotten that there's an up or a down. You don't get branches on a tree without a trunk. We've forgotten this today. I lift my eyes unto the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Secondly this morning, God our keeper, verses 3 and 4. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps Israel will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps, he who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Now here we see a very interesting shift in verse 3 in uh, the way that the song is crafted or sung. We we see a move from the first person in verses 1 and 2, I lift my eyes, my help, to the third person in verses 3 and 4, your foot, your, you will. So who is he singing to? Who are they singing to? She, he? We don't know. It could be that this, is, this song was crafted as like a two-part piece where somebody opens up with this question and answer and then the chorus of saints comes in and responds in affirmation and just kind of takes it home all the way to verse 8. It could be that this is just one of those personal songs that is sung out loud in the form of a question and answer and it's like it's a therapy to the pilgrim. I kind of like that. It's okay to talk to yourself. There's one person in my house, I'll leave her unnamed, who, um, who likes to talk to herself sometimes. I don't quite, you know, get it a lot, and I have to walk out and say, I'm sorry, and she's like, I'm not talking to you. i was like, okay. <laughs> it's okay to talk to yourself, providing you're speaking the truth. Providing you're speaking the truth. So it could just be that this pilgrim is lamenting about the realities of life finding an answer, and then just affirming that. That's exactly what we do when we meditate on Scripture, by the way. Out loud in our head, out louder in our head, whatever it is. So, maybe this pilgrim is singing to themselves. What are they singing? Well, this imagery here, what, what do we read? When it says, he will not let your foot be moved, the idea here is what it implies that somebody on this pilgrim through these hills before these hills, whatever, on this road, that they might slip, that they're injured, that they might stumble that they might fall, hurt themselves, maybe even die but biblically when we read about this idea of slippery feet that language is usually indicative of spiritual judgment. For example, Deuteronomy 32, 35 vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip For the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. In fact, you even see this in Matthew 4, uh, with the temptation of Jesus. Satan takes Jesus up to that temple mount, stands him over the edge and says, If you are truly the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, listen to how he quotes Psalm 91. He's given a sermon to the Son of God. Good luck. But listen to how he quotes Psalm 91 here. If you're truly the Son of God, throw yourself down off this temple mount, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You know what Satan's problem is? He's got many. But right here in the context of Matthew 4, he's got terrible hermeneutics. We talk about hermeneutics all the time, these rules for interpretation, how we go about interpreting scripture, it's so important. You want to know why we bang on about it so much? Well, here's reason number one. Satan has bad hermeneutics and we don't want to be like Satan. The very first words out of his mouth were an assault on the integrity of God's word. Did God really say? How fitting that we have in John 1, the word coming into the world made flesh. Satan has bad hermeneutics. Because Psalm 91 has nothing to do with literally stubbing your toe. This is about spiritually slipping. 1 Samuel 2.9, he will guard your feet. He will guard the feet of the faithful ones. He's not promising that he's going to put a little concrete box around your toe so you don't trip and hurt your toenail. It's not what he's talking about here. It's a spiritual slipping. We have never in the history of Christianity, of redemptive history, there has never been a Christian who has fallen in the Deuteronomy 32 sense. Never. So when we read, he will not let your foot be moved, it is not promising that Christian pilgrims will never fall over and break a bone. It is not promising that Christian pilgrims are not going to bleed, sweat, have broken hearts, and go through pain and suffering. That is not what this is about. No Christian. If, if that was what this is about, then we've got a real problem here with the text, don't we? Because no Christian has ever gone through life unscathed. If you and I, this is, again, a metaphor of God's providence over our life. Why? Why are we not going to sleep? What is this really getting at? Look here. He who keeps you will not slumber, because he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. This metaphor of God sleeping. What is this all about? It's a bit odd. probably doesn't resonate with us as much today. And that's because the pantheon of paganism back then had a whole host of gods that used to sleep all the time. You had, for example, uh, the, the creation myths of Babylon, um, Anu and Tiamat, the, these gods who couldn't sleep and kept on getting woken up from the younger gods who were partying all the time. Um, you had with uh, the Greek pantheon, uh, you had Zeus who was put to sleep by hypnos. Uh, you know, we, you can start to see the etymology of our words, hypnotherapy, all these words deriving from the ancient Greek. So the god of hypnos... Uh, who put Zeus to sleep and that didn't... so he could get away with doing some stuff while Zeus was asleep, the god goddess, of the goddess sky, and he didn't like that. So when the god of the sky woke up, he ran after the god of sleep and they had a bit of a fight and it was hard days in the celestial domain for those guys. Point is, their deities used to sleep. There used to be times when their eyes would shut and things would get past them. And what is this armor saying here? Mm-mm. Not on my god's watch, not on Yahweh's watch. Nothing gets past the keeper. This would have stood out in stark contrast back then to the other gods on offer, not Yahweh. In fact, you remember this uh, from Kings, 1 Kings 18, 11 to 27, when Elijah goes up to the hills and he taunts the priests of Baal and he says, hey, 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 let's just give you a second round. Maybe your gods are sleeping. Maybe we should just go wake them up, you know, let them come out. If, maybe we just need to wake them up because nothing was happening when he their gods. Yahweh does not sleep. He is never neglectful of his people. He never falls asleep at the wheel. This is the constancy of God's keeping. The constancy of God's keeping. That is precisely what this word keep means, by the way. It's shema in the Hebrew, which means to watch over. It's the same word used in um, Genesis when the Lord God put Adam in the garden to watch and to keep over it. It is a keeping, it is a stewardship, it is a guardianship. That's what is going on here. God is watchful over his own. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. God is a divine insomniac. This psalm is emphatic as to God's providentially meticulous concern and watchfulness over every single facet of your life. How do you feel? Before you answer that, just stop and think, ever complained about a benevolent big brother? We complain about dictators because they're so evil. Who's going to complain about that messianic kingdom when we have a benevolent dictator God? This is a very, very encouraging psalm. It is beautiful. It is beautifully crafted. It is rich. It is a hope-filled song of ascent. But take heed... If we read this and we fall into the temptation of thinking, look at how God loves me because I have such value, then we actually rob this of the psalm, we rob the beauty of this psalm. Because then we turn what this psalm is all about into us. And we take this beauty here and we reduce it to ash. It's not all about us. It's all about God. We have value because of Him. I'm not saying we don't have value. I'm not saying we're not loved by God. That's not at all. What I'm saying I'm saying that is not the starting point. God doesn't keep us because we are keepable. My goodness, that is why we have a gospel. If God could keep us because we, if God kept us because we were keepable, you can guarantee that the moment you wake up and think you're done. God does not keep us because we are so keepable. You know what the Bible calls us? We've said it before numerous times because it's in the scriptures all over the place. Time and again, the one animal it uses to analogically extend to us, sheep. Sheep. The one animal that was just made for domestication. It is totally helpless out there, made for domestication, and the Sunday afternoon slow cooker. Mm. Here we go. Two. (laughs) <laughs> keeping count with a pinch of mint this is a hardly flattering analogy a hardly flattering analogy of the human condition sheep can strut around all they want and think that they're lions, but we have a word for that, it's called delusion we are sheep, prone to wander Lord I feel it prone to leave the God I love that is a very sheepy song it's a very sheepy song. We had it at our, our our wedding, and and for good reason. It is a sheepy song, and yeah, ba ba. But how does the rest of that song go? Let's not stop there. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Take and keep it. Keep it for Thy courts above. It's good. He who keeps you will not slumber. There's the individual. He who keeps the sheep will not slumber. Why? Because he who keeps Israel, there's the collective. He who keeps the flock will neither slumber nor sleep. Mark this. If nothing else from today that you take away, take away this. God keeps you because he keeps his covenant with his people. We are grafted in, Paul says, in, in Romans 11. We are grafted into this spiritual, this Israel mentioned here in Romans eleven twenty-four. 24, this historically literal nation of Israel. We are grafted into the spiritual blessings that were given to them. Romans 11. We are grafted in what, why, who, where, how? Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-one by the blood provision of the new covenant in Jesus Christ. He is our keeper. Because we belong to the kept. So you see, the beauty of this psalm is not found because of us. It is in spite of us. It is not because of us that he keeps us from slipping or falling, falling over. It is in spite of us. It's a hard pill to swallow. But swallow we must because... If, if you think to the contrary, just, you know, read Psalm 73 and be broken with this reality. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, and they do. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Amen. 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 This is the Pilgrim's Keeper. That's how we are kept. And that's why we are kept. He will not let your foot be moved because you belong to a covenant keeping God if you are united to him in the death and resurrection of Jesus. So let's be hit with it now. We're standing. We're not stumbling. What is this talking about? Hear these scriptures. We stand in grace, Romans 5.2. We stand in the gospel, 1 Corinthians 15.1. We stand in faith, 1 Corinthians 16.13. We stand in freedom, Galatians 5.1. We stand in spiritual unity, Philippians 1.27. We stand in the Lord, Philippians 4.1. Why, oh, why, oh, why are we doing all this standing? Colossians 4.12, so that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. You better believe that, if, that you would not be assured if you were standing on your own. This is, not, this is not an assault against your value. It actually takes your value and puts it in the right place. You are not so lovable because of who you are. You are made in the image of God, which means you derive your value from not yourself, but God. This is beautiful, but let's put it in its context. Our value is derivative from God. We don't give to God something worthy of keeping. He makes us keepable because he loves us. He will not let your foot be moved. This psalm ought to make us well up with tears at the all-consuming, comprehensive constancy of God's goodness and sovereign providence over your very soul, not because we are oh so lovable, but because he is. God so loved the world, there's the collective that he sent his one and only son into the world so that whosoever there's the individual will not perish have everlasting life this is the constancy of god's keeping god our helper god our keeper that's it everything else in this Psalm points to that reality and away from the reality we could stop now clap sing sing some songs and go on our merry way but oh wait there's more god our shelter verse five and six scripted spontaneity gotta love it (laughs) <laughs> thirdly this morning God our shelter verses five and six the Lord is your keeper the Lord is your shade on your right hand the sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night now this is really interesting because it's kind of like this song is, is just kind of you start off singing this song you ask this question you, you answer it and you're like where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, this guy who never sleeps in the celestial world who just loves us. And then it's, it's kind of like there's an antagonist on the side, at least in my imagination. Who's just like, are you kidding me? No way. This does not happen. Get out of town. This Lord who keeps you, he's going to help you. He doesn't sleep. Just stop, man. This is just, I can't believe this. And it's like the chorus of saints who are singing it, just like amp up the volume and say, "You better believe it, because I'm going to keep on singing. I'm going to give you some more analogies, some more metaphors, so that you get to the end of verse eight, and you're just going to be overwhelmed at the constant keeping of God's providence over your life. So strap in. He, it's it's just like they amp it up another level and start, you know, working the jawline. It's heavy. It's resounding. The psalmist sings, "You better believe it. Listen to this. The Lord is your keeper." Your shade, your right hand, you will not be struck day or night. Look, verse 5. And there's symmetry here, by the way. He will not let your foot be moved, individual. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep, collective. The Lord will keep. The Lord is your keeper back to the individual. So, verse 5, let's have a look. The Lord is your keeper, the Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. Just marinate on this for a moment. Just soak in these lamb juices. Is not this amazing? We see here a few obvious things. Again, in the context of the gospel, we know why God is our keeper. But that means here, you know, at the very least, he's near. He's personal. But there's something else. Did you catch it? It's strategic. Look at where he is. God isn't just close. He isn't just hovering over you like a shadow. He is specifically and strategically positioned at your right hand. You see, back in the day, you used to carry your shield in your left, which meant your right side was exposed and open. So if you're an important person, you're in a battle, they will put the armed guards on your right-hand side as a measure of protection to shield you from the enemy. Look where the Lord stands. Spiritually, metaphorically. Psalm 16.8. I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Psalm 17.8. He, keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 57.1. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. Not my body, not my physical life, not my health, not my wealth. My soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. till the storms of destruction pass by. There are storms. This is the cry of a redeemed soul. It is a complete refuge in God our shelter. And you see that the totality here with the next line, the sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. Again this is literally true of pilgrims on a road, they got sun-kissed, sunburnt, you know, um, sun heat stroke, del- delusion in the day and the lunacy that comes with nighttime, literally lunar of the moon. That's where that idea comes from, whether spiritual or physical or otherwise. So there is a antecedent here that, that that has recourse to pilgrims on a physical road. But think spiritually again. What does this mean? I think it is talking about the known, visible, and the unknown, unseen. It is constant all the way around the clock. And that's particularly the case when you look at the Hebrew calendar, uh, Psalm 81.3, blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon on the day of our feast. Every single day of every single week of every single month of every single year of your life, this is the constancy of God's keeping, of God's sheltering. He is our round-the-clock keeper. So verse 6 here, again, is this comprehensive image or metaphor that reinforces everything we just looked at already about God's keeping. That's what I mean. It's like these, these singers are just you know, laying it on you with some more analogies to help you get the point. He is both our shield at our right hand as well as our shelter from those relenting elemental forces that are just constantly on us all the time. You cannot escape it by virtue of creation in a broken world. God, our keeper. God, our Sorry, God our helper, God our keeper, God our shelter. Fourthly and finally this morning, what do we see? God our preserver, verses 7 and 8. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep you. your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Now here uh, Psalm 121 just the, the the noise level gets even louder. There is this comprehensive trilogy of keeps, which is so purposeful and, and all-encompassing. It's kind of like the singers or the songwriter is just like, in case you think, you know, my analogies or whatever have got some loopholes, let me just double back and make sure that, that, uh, that you understand nothing gets by the keeper. Let me just give some really broad, all-encompassing ideas and analogies and statements here so that you can just get the totality of this, lest you think that, the, that this song or that God, you know, something gets by, nothing gets by the keeper. This, you just get shot with this triple-barrel shotgun of keeps. It's like, take that, now go on your merry way. This is total. It's comprehensive. It is utterly complete. The Lord preserves his keeping. God, our preserver. But again... Let's take the bullet. It sounds like this is saying nothing bad will happen to us. We've been saying this is all about the gospel, it's spiritual, I get that. But come on. This is reading just like the plain meaning of scripture here, which I take at face value and for good reason, seems to be telling me that God is really looking out for me. How can I reconcile this with what I'm going through? If you're not asking that question, how honest are you when you're reading texts like this? It's a real question. That's what half the Psalms are. Half of them are David lamenting. He's in the trough and then it's like a rollercoaster comes back out and he's at the peak. What does this mean? Because all of us know that there is no escaping the exemptions of life. We all get sick. We all hunger. We all bleed. We all sweat we hurt. As one family fractures in heartache with the breakup so another heart aches because it doesn't have a family to be united with in singleness. As finances go up, businesses go down. As one life is born, another life ends. As kids disappoint, so do parents. We, there are no escaping the exceptions of life. How can this psalm be so categorical and assuring to us. When we read the scripture, we need to always be careful that we take the scripture in the context of scripture. So here's a really good way to do this, particularly with the Psalms, because they are songs. You don't ever listen to a song and take the song literally true. You, you try and understand what the song is about with its analogies and metaphors. So how would... Ask yourself, here's, here's one good way to try and work out how to, how to get this understanding of the text. Ask yourself, how would Joseph have sung Psalm 121? How would Joseph have sung this song? Beaten, bloodied, thrown into a, a well by his jealous brothers and yet he will not let your foot be moved? Stripped naked, sold on a foreign slave trade by his scheming, covetous brothers? And yet he will keep you from all evil for how many decades? In a prison? How would Joseph have sung this song? Well, like our psalmist, he doesn't leave us to wonder either because he answers that question. Genesis 50, 19 to 20, he looked his brothers in the eye and he said, do not fear, for I am in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God... God meant it for good. Jesus didn't come into this world to make bad people good. He came into this world to make dead people live. And the paradox of the Christian life is so often the road to life is filled with bad things. The greater reality here that we have seen is not just found, though, in a historical narrative like Genesis 50. Joseph. It's principally found in another narrative in the Gospel Passions, where Jesus himself in that garden knelt down, Gethsemane, looked up to that hill of Calvary that stood before him, that loomed ahead of him, cried out, Where does my help come from? Take this cup from me. Lord, he did not want to walk that hill. And again, he doesn't leave us to wonder because he said, Where does my help come? My help comes from. The Lord, not my will, but your will be done. If you're here today and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that He raised, that God raised him from the dead, lay claim to this. Lay claim to this. This once-for-all sacrifice in which God Himself, through Jesus Christ, was that Lamb on that temple for that slaughter. You have no need to go on that pilgrimage literally today, because you have a once-for-all salvation in which the Lamb of God himself was slain. He suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. God did that. It is finished. Folks, you and I go wrong when we fail to realise that all we ultimately have in this world is Jesus. Not your health, not your wealth, not your mum, not your dad, not your spouse, not your husband, your wife, not your child. Not your son, not your daughter, not your money, not your job, not your things. Jesus and Jesus alone. If you live for anything else, then ask yourself this question. What do you do when they're taken away from you? What do you do when you have no more stuff left? In fact, this is, this is the kind of stuff I have to think about in my studies. You know, This is actually in the mid-20th century where some philosophers started theorizing about the justification and legitimacy of suicide. Because if life is this hedonistic lifestyle, it's all about maximizing pleasure, minimizing pain, then when you run out of a surplus of pleasure, what do you do? You run yourself out. Because your identity and your worth and your value is found in stuff, in things, in relationships. Every single worldview apart from Christianity, says what you do determines who you are. Christianity stands alone. You want to know why I'm a Christian? Christianity stands alone for this fundamental fact that it says who you are determines what you do. That means anything can happen around you to those you love the most and you still have value and purpose in which to live because it's not about things. It's about who God has made you. Your value is intrinsic because it was first extrinsic in God. Your value is not found in stuff. Your value is found from the one who never moves, who never changes. The immutable anchor of God. You know, now you start to understand these metaphors, like in the Sermon on the Mount, found on a rock or on the sand, which shifts and moves. Every worldview stands apart from Christianity for that number one fact. And if we miss the gospel-centric nature of this psalm here today, then let me tell you, we miss the beauty of the whole song, not just of these eight verses, but the entire song of your life for which you were created to sing. So press on. Come what may, you are kept. He will keep you from all evil. That's anything that could threaten your spiritual disposition in Christ. He will keep your life. That's anything that could threaten your spiritual life that began at your rebirth in Jesus. Don't make Nicodemus error in John 3. There is a spiritual rebirth. That is the life being spoken of here. He will keep your going out and your coming in. That's God's all-encompassing providential care for your very soul safeguarding you every step of the way in this life and, yes, even beyond, through that dark, shadowy chasm valley of the shadow of death that we all must walk but it's okay because we have a shepherd he's rod and his staff they guide us they comfort us why because he's done it before us and we will walk one day into that new jerusalem where there's going to be no more tears no more pain no more heartache and acts just says it so beautifully it would be a renovation a renovation where things that were, were, were bad are going to be changed it's incredible. We, our minds haven't, can't even comprehend what that's all about. But this is a security that awaits for all of us, both now and forevermore. So here we are, Psalm 121, the Pilgrim's Keeper. Eight verses, four couplets. God our helper, God our keeper, God our shelter, God our preserver. One consistent theme, the goodness and sovereign providence of God, of your very soul. Let me read it one more time by way of benediction, and we'll go out for our day and week. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth, both now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... Just marvel at this song, that is Psalm 121, what a precious truth it is to behold in a world that is twisting itself apart. You are our help, we are kept. We stand, we won't be moved, you are our shade, you are on our right hand. You keep us from all evil, you keep our life, our going out, our coming in. Father, your loving kindness is amazing and it's amazing not because we're lovable but because you desire to love us. Grace, Lord, that is our Christian creed, a song that sounds sweeter than any music outside the gospel. It gets better and better. A tune that we come to realise through faith in what you've done because that's the currency of your economy. And this life, this pilgrimage, this dusty road, this sweat and tears are the proving ground of that faith. And God, that means that life just ain't easy. We just don't feel right so much of the time, and yet you never called us to feel right. You called us to be righteous. So often, often that road to being righteous is paved with just not feeling right. God, like, uh, like Joseph and more importantly like Jesus, we just look to these models of scripture and we just marvel at the fact that despite the evil that came their way, Lord, you desired it for good. You, in your divine sovereignty, use evil to defeat evil. That's incredible. What a precious, all-sufficient saviour you are. You keep us from stumbling. To present us blameless before your presence and glory with great joy. So, Father, it is to you, our God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, that we now give our glory, we hand out our praise to your glory and your majesty, your dominion and your authority and your power will remain both now and forevermore. Father, it is this that we now pray in thankfulness to you. All God's people said, Amen.